Let's turn in our Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> Today we're going to look at verse 14 through verse 29. Stand with me again as we honor God's Word and read along if you wish. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teacher of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help, my un helped. Help to overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Heavenly Father, mercy. Show us your mercy and show us the truth. Scripture says mercy and truth met together. In the Old Testament in the King James, mercy and love married one another. And I pray, Father, that you will show us balance today, you'll show us truth today, and you'll invigorate us spiritually as we seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Where would you guess Jesus and his disciples are in this text? Rhetorical question, but as we learned several chapters ago, or over a chapter ago, this is the still in Caesarea Philippi, it's still in the land of the Gentiles on Jesus' journey up through Tyre and Sidon and then his complete circuit of the entire Decapolis. And then he has gone back into Caesarea Philippi and in meeting with Gentiles along the way and multitudes of Gentiles, serving them by feast, serving them by deliverance, serving them by healing, preaching the word to them. 
And it's an incredible expression of Jesus gathering His people. Prior to that, we saw that large campaign to the Jewish people. Saw that in Galilee and Pernium, that area and region. And He also served those people in the same manner, even to the point of feeding them. As we saw the two miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 men and the 4,000 total people here now in Caesarea. Actually, a little further south for the feeding, and they went north to Caesarea. Transfiguration has taken place. They've been to the mountaintop. Peter called in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, he called it the sacred mountain. They had seen the Lord transfigured, Peter, James, and John. They had experienced the cloud coming upon them. And they had desired to stay there. And, of course, Jesus is now taking them down the mountain. And so this, this sermon today falls in this, what is becoming, at least in our study, a series um, coming down the mountain. Things that are happening as they come down from the mountain. And so already we've seen more happen when they're coming down from the mountain than we're on the mountain. I think that's very noteworthy. You know, we, we learn some things by mountaintop experiences, but we learn a lot more by coming down from those mountaintop experiences and see those things um, like a putting an Alka-Seltzer in water as they dissolve and become part of our larger frame of, of life and how we see those things applied to us. They see, as they come down the mountain, a contrast. On the mountain they saw Christ transfigured. They saw heavenly persons who are earthly but now heavenly persons. Elijah and Moses. They heard God's own voice. This is my son who I'm well pleased. And then of course that poignant portion of that is listen to him. That they're admonished to do. And so they see in contrast to that, as they come down, their own feelings of, I think I've seen everything there is to see in life, but, not, but recognizing that Jesus is talking about suffering to them. He's talking about himself dying in Jerusalem, being tried and suffering and dying in Jerusalem. He said that before, and Peter rebuked him for it, and then he's, he's instructed them again. He's, he's instructing them about the kingdom of God. And they're seeing their whole world from a different orientation than they had seen it before not from their historic Jewish eschatological orientation, but now from a framework of Jesus and Him as the Messiah and what He is presenting about what eschatology is and what the kingdom of God is and who is bringing in the kingdom of God. And it will continue to heighten as they're reunited now with the other disciples. They come down the mountain, they're reunited with the other disciples, and what do they find? They find them arguing with scribes and a crowd and perhaps a father over something. They don't know exactly what it is yet, but they appear to be entangled. The word is used for arguing here is literally a fight. They're close to blows. They're very upset by it. Everybody's very upset. It's kind of like watching a political debate. I mean, I, as I was thinking about this text, and I watched the let, that Democratic debate this week, and you see these persons up there, at one point, everybody on the stage is talking. And they're not just being patient. They're really getting into it. Like, they're all just talking all at once. I just, I thought, man, that is the most incredible thing I ever saw in my whole life. And then the moderator's like this. That's kind of the environment we see here. Except it's not just, a, it's not just you know, a few people on the stage, it's a crowd of people. It would be as if the crowd during that debate stood up, walked to the stage, and they all start saying what they want to say too. It was just pandemonium that was taking place. <laughs> and they didn't seem to have any power to remedy this, the disciples. 
until what? Until Jesus arrives. And I believe that's the key to the whole passage. In fact, that's the title I've chosen for us. Wait for Jesus to arrive. And I think that we will find a great deal of comfort in these moments when we feel like things are just completely out of control. Well, in order to prepare ourselves for this, I want to, again, as we've done every time, I'd like to look at the synoptic parallels to this. There's two. There's one in Matthew has a synoptic parallel and also Luke. I'd like to look at these and read them together just so we can, you know, as we've, and I won't belabor this. I'm taking quite a bit of time every, every time we've talked about this. The synoptic gospels, the first three are written similar, similar in a similar manner. Much of them is, uh, finds nearly exact duplication when it comes to the words of Jesus. Or, as is known typically in biblical study, the sayings of Jesus. And that the sayings of Jesus, the reason why they're so accurate and they're so similar in these three Gospels is because each of these three persons are taking these sayings of Jesus, these conversations, these memories, and they're taking these and they're trying to apply them to the people group that God's called them to reach. So we see a distinction in Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, of course, is not one of the synoptic Gospels. John's whole purpose is completely different. He has no chronology, nothing similar to the synoptics other than some of the words of Jesus within them. So there's a lot of similarities in the words of Jesus. So if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, you, you look through the synoptic Gospels, you see them in red, and you look at another, you see it in red, and it's very similar. You will see that right now, it's similar. But the context is often different, a little bit different, because the purpose of the author to reach his audience we find his context of trying to reach his audience, and so that comes through as well. That's all I'm going to say about that, because it very quickly gets into lesson three of the first course in uh, understanding the New Testament. So we'll, we'll just take it for that, okay? Yeah? So Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 through 21. When they came to the crowd... Now, the verses before is about the transfiguration. That's all very similar in Matthew's gospel. So they're coming to the same place that, that Mark is discussing today. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So you see already, much of the dialogue between the Father and Jesus is eliminated. It's not there. We see just a little bit of it, but not much of it is it's not nearly as much as we find in Mark. We also see the crowd is not nearly as involved in Matthew's gospel as we see Mark um, portraying it. In Luke chapter 9, verse 37 through 45. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. 
Now, again, this is much shorter. There's not as much diagnostic kind of discussion with Jesus and the Father. The crowd is minimized. It's, it's very, but one thing that stands out very powerfully in this, in this Luke version is that Jesus, in verse 42, he threw out the demon and he healed him. We see these two things. We see him throwing out the demon and then he healed him. And I think that's very instructive as we go through, and we'll comment on why that's so instructive to go through. But basically it becomes two things, not one thing. Not saying that every person who has an epileptic issue is all taking place by a demon, or that even any of it is demonic at its core. But there are two forces working here. There's both the context of the disease or the condition, and then the person who is trying to use this in a, in a way that brings destruction. And so we see two elements there. And I think that's a very important thing to see. And, uh, and, and you can see, just by doing that, we can see how the synoptic gospel helps to inform us of a broader thing to consider. If we just read Mark, we just read Matthew, we just read Luke and said, that's all I want to read, then we would be, we'd be really um, not receiving as much information as we could receive. And, and in this case, information I think is going to be very valuable for us to see. All right, so as we then go through our own text in Mark, we see in verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Um, this is a, a different kind of context than the others. We don't have a sense of a large crowd. We don't have a sense of the, the, not the, the scribes, the teachers of the law. They, they didn't seem to even be present in the other ones. But in this one, we see this pandemonium that's there. And the word, as I said earlier, for the arguing with them, this word arguing is, is a violent, violent argument. It's a, it's, it's, the whole thing is just this whirlwind of confusion. There's people that are putting in their opinion. You know, isn't it wonderful? You can learn a lot when five people are talking, right, and all yelling at each other. At some point, somebody's going to call time out, send people to their corners, and you talk one at a time. Have you ever get in a situation like that? I've uh, refereed a lot of those kinds of arguments and discussions in family contexts, and um, I wish to say it wasn't mine as well, but you know, we all tend to be kind of stampeded in these kind of situations from time to time. It opens in a manner that's very reminiscent in my thoughts of Moses as he, they come to the Mount Sinai and God calls him to go up on the mountain. He tells the people to stay at the bottom of the mountain. There's all that instruction. They can't even come near the mountain because if they do, they'll die and all this kind of stuff. Now it becomes a sacred mountain, a holy mountain set aside for only one thing. Only Joshua follows him up, but he only follows him up a portion of the way. He's kind of sitting there toward the base of the mountain waiting for Moses to come down. Moses comes up for 40 days. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He's in the presence of God. He, of course, he's in God's presence. It doesn't say he sees God because God is spirit. He's not seeable. But being in his presence is no diminished place than if you saw him. And so God delivers to him these Ten Commandments. He, he inscribes them literally on stone himself. All Ten Commandments he describes on stone and on these two tablets on which the Ten Commandments are listed, he comes down the mountain, he sees Joshua, his face is shining. His face is shining because of being in the presence of God. And Joshua greets him and says, I think we've got a problem. <laughs> you know? And then he finds the people at the base of the mountain and they have... Let me give you their explanation. We, we just threw some gold in the fire and out came a golden calf. That's like, how old are these people? Three, two, four. I don't know what happened. You know, I, I, just, I just came in, it was broken. I remember this very indelible memory of mine. My, when my, my grandsons, Jack and Owen, were just little boys, three and one, I guess. They're in the back seat of my my um, seasoned car, <laughs> okay, let's put it that way. You know, I, I had this car, it, it kind of ran, 
but inside it was not, it was less than a, you know, luxurious. It had this headliner, you know, the headliners start coming down out of a car, and the wind comes, it's like being some kind of a chic or something. It's just like this all over the place. And so I'm trying to keep mine together by pinning it and all this kind of stuff. And so Jack's back there, and he's in his little car seat, and I'm going someplace, and we're talking for a minute, and then I, for some reason, he got quiet. It's, it's kind of nice to have the kids be quiet. After about five minutes, I turn around there, here's Jack, and he's got a hole in this. He's pulled his headliner down all around. It's all down on his face. It's in his hand. He's got his hand, parts of it in his hand. And I, so I, was, I was stopped. Or so I, I said, what are you doing, Jack? He said, Grandpa, it broke. <laughs> so I think I probably wrote that in a journal and signed it and had him sign it. I can't remember. But um, it's like when our kids used to write in our books, we'd just put their name and date right next to where they wrote in our books. You know, that's my Bible. Well, that's, look at there. That's when she was a little girl. But you see this reaction by the people and everything just seems to be in a state of pandemonium. Moses is so mad that he takes the tablets, he breaks them over his, something, he breaks them, I don't know if it was a knee, and then heads off back up into the mountain. Remember that? <laughs> I think that we have something kind of similar. As they're coming down from the mountain, we, they meet something very similar to this. And as a result, <laughs> they saw... These, these, these guys that were so enlightened, I wonder what Peter, James, and John thought when they saw that. When they saw that. Well, they, we had a reaction maybe like Josh, doesn't give us any idea what they thought about it. But when Jesus saw it, as Ju soon as Jesus saw it, it says in verse 15, they were overwhelmed, excuse me, as soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now this word, overwhelmed with wonder. Now what do you think another word that would be a very similar word, um, in fact they share kind of a common root, is the word amazed. Don't you love that word? I heard somebody say, it's Monday. That's amazing, the other person says. I think, really? That's amazing? Well we know, we've talked about amazing ever since we saw amazing in the first chapter of Mark, right? It means to be overwhelmed by it, to be overwhelmed, literally in some cases to have fear that comes into your heart as a result of such an otherworldliness, something else that's out of your context that you can't describe. Well, that's exactly what they're seeing here. Now, some persons have said, trying to keep the Moses story alive, and they say, well, maybe this is how, you know, that Jesus, the, the after effects of the transfiguration are still glowing upon him. Well, Jesus to tell his disciples, don't tell anybody about this, and then come down there looking exactly like it looked on the top of the mountain, it seems a little unrealistic to think that that would be an expectation of Jesus of them if he wasn't back to his common form. And also said when they woke up in on one of the parallel Gospels to Mark, it says that they were sitting with Jesus as he was. So he was, it was all, all the, the aura was gone, and so they came down together. And so why are they so overwhelmed? Well, why were all people overwhelmed with Jesus? Initially, because they wanted something from him. You know, they wanted something. We get so, they're so overwhelmed because they, they saw their neighbor got something, some other friend got something, they heard of something, they remember that feast, or whatever it might have been, and they feel that they want something from Jesus. The disciples haven't got the juice. I mean, they can't do anything with this guy. They don't care about this kid. They don't care about his father. They just care about can the disciples deliver for this guy? And if they can, maybe they can deliver for me. But none of this is happening, and so they're all getting upset. And then at the same moment, here comes Jesus down the mountain with these other three other disciples, and they just turn and say, oh, wow, there's the real thing. And they all go running for, to him. So you can imagine what people who, the word, the word that's used is frenzy, literally to be driven out of your mind. They're, they're driven out of their mind with desire to go and, and see Jesus. And as they do, as they run to see Jesus, tells verse 16, Jesus says, what are you arguing about? Now the, the Greek says literally, 
he asks the scribes, what are you arguing about? He immediately saw that the persons that he was most concerned were the scribes. I'm, I'm astounded, honestly, as I, as I study this, that that was not something that was maintained in every version, but I think it appears in only several versions um, of the Scriptures. The indication that he is, these are scribes that he is referring to. Some people say, well, he's talking to his disciples. What are you arguing about? Certainly not to the crowd. What are you arguing about? And it's not clear from later on that the whole crowd saw him. It was only those that were just around this section that were there. Because later, crowds, full crowds, when they realized who he really was, they started coming to him. And so we see that he's interrupted this little argument with these few people in the crowd as the scribes are arguing with his disciples. Now, what are they arguing about? Don't you wish that that was something that we could have some details on? What is he arguing about? And instead of the, the scribes answering him, instead of the crowd answering him, and instead of his disciples answering him, we see in verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, I really did a lot of study on that word, answered, because I want to see if there's any way that he answered. But it's, I'm sure he just wasn't just standing there and the crowd's completely gone nuts. And he says, Jesus, may I say something? No, he was probably having to scream at the top of his lungs just to be heard. And a man in the crowd answered, or cry, and I can't say cried out because it doesn't mean that. A, a, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Now, just, let me just stop there and see if we can't kind of squeeze on that just a little bit. The man's intention was and his actions were that he brought his son to see Jesus. Right? But Jesus was up on a mountain. So then, apparently, he turned to Jesus' disciples. So he wants Jesus, but he gets his disciples. Do you see how any problem could develop out of that? Yeah. It definitely could develop out of that. Because Jesus, when he came, he would have done when he he would have done when the same thing he came as when the person he came when he first met the man. If he had been there, he would have been the one who was the ministry to him. He would have taken over. He would know what to do, what to say, how to how how to um, um, deliver this deliverance to the to the man's boy. But instead he got the disciples. And he describes it very quickly to him. He gives some information we see in all three Gospels to some level. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Now that's a description of an eyewitness. That's somebody that's an eyewitness that is, first of all, the father's an eyewitness, but Luke doesn't give much Credence to that. He just says a sick person, you know, a boy possessed by a demon or something like that. Matthew's is also very sketchy. But here we see in Mark's statement, he gives us enough precision for modern day translators to actually identify this as epilepsy and he's having a grand mal seizure. Some kind of a grand mal seizure associated with ep epilepsy. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. I've seen that take place several times, not, not many, many times. But it's a terrifying thing to watch. Just to watch it is terrifying. And, you know, someone rushes in like a mother or a father, and they just rush in and they say, you know, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. You know, don't get excited. It's going to be okay. But you do that in a place where, you know, you're just in the, a, a modern, I mean, a an uninformed population, and that takes place, and man, you feel like there's demons all over the place. That they're, this, It just has an appearance of this person you know, being possessed and the demons manifesting itself. Anybody ever had that experience? We see it sometimes, sometimes in places where we, like theaters or 
parks or places where suddenly someone has this happen. Everybody's kind of just, they're not going up to see. They're, they see and they kind of back up like, wow, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy, man. It causes in itself this huge reaction. But the degree of, of precision that the person is giving, and then secondarily, the person who's observing it and then writing about it in this context, Mark, Peter doesn't give that kind of, you know, he, he talks about the holy mountain and he talks about that. He doesn't give that much precision. And so Peter is obviously the apostle that Mark had an association with that walked with Jesus. But you know, through you know, our early discussion, we see that Mark very likely could have been, and very likely could have been, an eyewitness to these things. Luke calls him one of the eyewitnesses. The, the apostles, that, uh, the, the gospel writers, are eyewitnesses of the gospel and the resurrection and, and the whole outpouring of the, the unfolding of the gospel. And so is this a, does it take much creativity to see that Mark is writing this and very likely remembering it in his own mind? Remembering not just the description of it, but seeing this, this boy thrown to the ground, foaming at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, becoming rigid, as we saw, we see this incredible eyewitness account or close to a person who had an eyewitness account of this event. And Jesus' response to them is interesting. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. Speaking to the scribes, are they, are they making a case that this is not, what is the case that they would be making about a person who is wanting his son to be healed of epilepsy? Would his case be something like, this is just natural. This is happens to some people. You can't, there's no healing for this. You can't, you can't do anything about this. It's just, it's just the way things are. Or maybe his parents have sinned. You know, one of the things they love to do is talk about his parents being the sinners. And, and even in the Jewish law, that was that, 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 um, relationship of cause and effect. It's a causal thing. His parents sinned or his, 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 something in his life is not right. His father, maybe the father's a sinner. That's why he's being punished this way. You know, take the Job argument. You know, you've sinned, therefore this comes upon you, third and fourth generation, all this kind of business. Well, third and fourth generation is a, is a more new way to describe the same phenomenon. But to get into this argument over this and all the while the disciples, having been with Jesus, having seen him heal people, they're now trying out their wings. And by the way, they went, on a, they went out as 70 people. The disciples already went out early. It's not 70 yet. But they all, all went out on a missionary journey, and they saw people healed. And they saw the gospel preached. And they saw things themselves. And people started becoming attracted to them for the things they were doing. So it worked over there in Capernaum. Why is it working here? So they brought him. They brought him to Jesus. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. By the way, I might just add here that they had not seen this. They had only heard the Father's description of this so far. Before it was a description and a, and a request for prayer based upon a description of what happened to this boy. But now in the presence of Jesus, whatever this is and whatever is causing this, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. So, what does Jesus do? There's the father looking at the son. He's convulsing on the ground. There's all the people, disciples. Jesus sees him on the ground, and he says, hey, just give me a second. How often does this happen? How often does this happen? And he's just like gathering information here. Just getting a little information, you know, trying to make his diagnosis a good diagnosis, you know. So just jumping right in there, and you know, boom, we do it. Can you imagine the disciples saying, oh, we're going to heal him right now. He says, wait a minute, what, let me get an idea of what this is all about. And so he says to him, um, how long has... He'd been like this. From childhood, he answered. 
It's often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, if you can do something, take pity on us and help him. I think it's very constructive. You know, what, what did Paul say about laying hands suddenly on nobody? You know, it's, it's often important to find out what's going on, what's wrong, what the issue is, before we just wade in and just make a complete idiot out of ourselves and bring and cause God to, cause people, excuse me, cause people to, to um, contest or wonder if we're really Christians and if God's really real. Eh? If you can, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. I believe that this can be altered. I believe that you can alter this. I believe somehow this is going to, this, this, something could happen. But then he follows it up with a remarkable statement of humility and perspective on who he is and who he thinks Jesus is. Help my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus then saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. In the absence of the spirit, the boy looked as if he was a corpse. So much so that many people that were there said, he's killed him, he's dead, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and stood him up. Jesus took him by the hand, Jesus lifted him up, and Jesus stood with him. We see the same thing, same characteristic. Jesus did this and something happened. Jesus did this and something happened. Jesus did this and something happened. And the assumption we have at the beginning is the disciples are learning how to do this. Jesus sends them out to do this. They, they had the same responses themselves. I don't know about you, but I, I, I have found tremendous struggle in the subject of healing and praying for those to be healed. Even when I'm doing it, I, I find myself, like, like even the mor this morning, you know, how, how far do we go before we actually are starting to declare something? We declare that you're going to be healed. We declare it. Well, that's, that's a good thing to do when you have never prayed for anybody before. You've never entered into a catastrophe yourself when you've never suffered, when you feel like that, you know, you're the young Christian and you believe that God can do, God is good all the time. God will always do good all the time. I think that's how we translate that. God is good all the time. God is going to do good all the time. Whatsoever I ask in Jesus' name, believe I received it and I'll get it. Now we, we take those scriptures and we personalize them to be what I can do. Even when it's happened before. I've prayed for people and they've gotten remarkably well, quickly. And do I come from there and say, I have a ministry now. What's your ministry? Oh, my ministry is healing. Really? Is it your ministry? Is this contingent upon you, your faith, your belief, you? Where does belief come from? Where does faith come from? It is a gift of God, the Scripture says to us. 
It never becomes a possession of my own. It's always a possession that God has given me or put within me. In fact, it doesn't say faith in Jesus. It says the faith of Jesus is what brings healing. And so it's a difficult subject. And the disciples are having a difficult time with this because they thought they had it. They thought they had it. They thought they had it. And why isn't it working? And so they got aside with Jesus in verse 28 and they said, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we get rid of this demon? They could have asked them any question of response to prayer that you come up with. Here it's demonic, a demonic force. You know, our, how, do we even, how would we even know it's a demonic force? You know, my, my beautiful son Daniel, we were just with them recently, and, and um, we were talking kind of, with, with, you know, kind of comically about how Daniel was when he was like a little boy. Now, you know Daniel now. But man, we had a period of time where he went this stuff called very deep sleep. He'd go into deep sleep cycles. And there's no deep sleep cycles. He would be like this. He's completely asleep, sound asleep, but he showed up our door. He's like, and you're, first time it happened, I'm going, oh my gosh, what in the heck is wrong with this kid? And so you get up and go near him, you know, and, and you're holding him, talking to him. I didn't see it. I don't know where I'm Just all this talk like he's talking to somebody. You take it, and I take him into the bathroom, hold him in front of the mirror. He looked right in the mirror, and you go, oh, yeah, hey, 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 hey. I think, oh my gosh, my son's demon possessed. <laughs> and I prayed about this. Prayed about this and asked Frank Pedrera who prayed about this. Frank says it's deep sleep. You gotta wake him up. You gotta wake him up. So man, I, I thought, okay, we'll try that and see if that works. So next time, it wasn't very long. So I would get him up, I'd take him to the front of the mirror, I put his hands in the water, I just wash his hands. And as he's wash his hands, it's like this, he goes, Hi Daddy. <laughs> so how do you even diagnose it? You know, what we hear somebody else's testimony, and you need to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. You need to claim that, and you need to do this, and you need to do things like, don't come live my life, please. Don't come live my life. And if you come into our lives, be more like Jesus. Even Jesus himself comes and says, What's going on here? How long has this happened? Give me some information. What's going on? What's what's this all about? Instead of wading right into things. Next thing you know, you're arguing with somebody. You're debating over whether healing is real or not. And if you don't do it the way this person says you need to do it, then you don't believe in healing anymore. I give a teaching on the kingdom of God, the already but not yet. We already have all of the blessings of heaven, but we have not yet received the full blessings that we will have in heaven. There's two applications of the kingdom of God. There's the here and now, and there's the kingdom of God that we're going to experience in eternity. It's very unique. Jail and Ladd presented this idea. Very unique. But it solves so many problems. The person who comes up and says, oh, here and now, you get everything right now. The person is not really understanding the Scriptures. As a result, we need to be patient. And we ask ourselves, what's Jesus' response? This kind can come out only with prayer. What is prayer? What is prayer? Is prayer me praying that you're going to be healed? Is, that where, is it me and you? Invoking God somehow to give us His power. Maybe we already think we have His power because we have faith. We have power and we have faith and we have belief. And so we can exert this stuff. What's, what would you say to somebody? Just a simple thing. A little child says, what is prayer? What would you answer? It's exerting your power. It's demanding that God do the things that He's promised us. You know, Kenneth Hagin with this new revelation. God's revealed to us all of His will, therefore we can demand that He does His will. <laughs> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Somehow that doesn't go there. This kind comes only out by prayer. 
Isn't prayer seeking God? Isn't it speaking with God? Isn't it listening to God? Isn't it trying to understand His will? Isn't it taking the Scriptures as He speaks to us through the Scriptures and He speaks to us in our hearts, but they're guided by the Scriptural revelation? Prayer is this intimate relationship with seeking God. Not going and telling God, okay, it's not like a telephone talking to God. God, you up there, get on the phone. i got to tell you something. Go ahead, try that. Go ahead, try it. I'll tell you, it might, you might, see, it might just happen that your need and God's will intersect, and so you think, well, I got that. I made God do that. It's just troubling. Because, not because I'm pointing to somebody else. Because in my own personal experience, I've gone through this where a whole body of people were looking at us and looking at, at people we'd bring here and others that had some kind of an inside track to faith and healing. And we watch people across this room falling down and being healed by the guy who's got all the power. And I, remember, I know who those people were. I know what his problem, what her problem was, what she was suffering, she was suffering from. And then got all excited because, you know, they, they received their healing. They claimed it. Two weeks later, I'm dealing with that person and their disappointments and their, their feelings like, God, something's wrong with me. I must have sin in my life. What is it, Pastor? What's wrong with me? Without an answer. Prayer. Communion. Waiting on God. Waiting for God. Mrs. Klein, dear woman who was the pastor's wife in this church years ago, we were talking about a subject similar to this, and she was a very unique person. She didn't just jump into everything everybody else wanted to believe. She had her own basic standard and theological orientation and her perspective on things. She said, she, she would, I was like a little kid. She set me aside and said, you know, John, because she'd get me, see me get real excited. she wanted to try to help me because I got so excited I was probably getting ready to blast off into you know, some terrible place. She said, you know, around our house, we pray when our kids are sick and we're sick. And guess what? That's what she said. That's, we're not sick long. We don't stay sick long. <laughs> you know, and part of me thinks, man, you, you had no faith. How do you pray? God, i got to have this right now. If you don't give it to me, I don't believe in you anymore. Or I'm going to spank you tonight when we get home. No, we wait upon them. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. For what? For waiting upon the Lord. Tribulation, difficulty, suffering produces patience. Patience is waiting on the Lord. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Waiting. Waiting with determined hope. Waiting. You know, I had this thing with my arm. I had it for two years. It's still just trying to get over it. A little tingling still, you know. I talk about it much because I'm not suffering much. And I didn't talk about it. I try not to talk about it when I was having suffering. But I remember a few people prayed for me. Not, it wasn't the most outstanding. It was not a person in this church. And so then... So the person about four months later said, how's that arm? I said, yeah, yeah, it's really, you know, it's hard to say you're fine when you're kind of walking around like this, you know. I said, well, you know, it's still, it's just a hard thing. It's a hard thing. And they went, you mean you're not healed yet? Like, you know, what are you, backsliding? I'm waiting, patiently waiting on the Lord. I'm saying to the Lord, I will not be moved. I will trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways, I'll acknowledge him and he will lift me up. But if he doesn't lift me up when I'm ready to be lifted up, he can slay me and I won't. I'll still praise him. When we get this subject wrong, we find ourselves being the judge of people in their faith. And we find ourselves discouraged when we should be holding on with great encouragement. Because 
people say, you know, John, you're a patient person. Well, yes, you know, you want to be patient? Yeah, well, I'd love to be a patient person. Tribulation work of patience. You want to be patient? It's fruit of the Spirit. Patience. Patience. You want patience? Don't run away from things. Don't slough them off. Don't judge them off. Don't tell people they've got the wrong theology. You know, you can tell them all that you want, but if they're hurting and they're suffering and they're bitter, and I've seen people bitter over this, deeply bitter, left church, left Christianity, won't read the Bible. Why? Because God didn't do what He was supposed to do. Over and over again I see that. Someone says, I don't believe in God anymore. And the first thing I say is, what happened to you? Tell me the story of what happened where your expectation got a mile high and you saw God deliver. Probably was, God was delivering. They didn't see it because their expectation's up here. Jesus is not giving a method of exhortation. He's not giving a method on how you exercise your faith. He is giving a means to reach the source of power which we can bring which can bring deliverance. And that source is Him. Johnny Erickson has this incredible book called For Those Tears. She calls it For Those Tears. It's, it's hard to even get through the first chapter. She goes, it starts out by she's going on some trip over into some land, place in Africa where she's bringing wheelchairs to people who don't have any wheelchairs. And what does she find there? She finds this place where people, some people don't have arms or legs. Someone else can't talk, they're, or they're blind, and the blind person's helping the person with no legs, and the person with no legs is speaking for the deaf person. And together they make about a fifth of a person. And she's rolling in there to tell them how, you know, God's going to deliver you. And, and she goes from one thing to the next to the next in this thing, and you're thinking, this is impossible. Who could live like this? And when you talk to these persons, they rejoice because they know Jesus Christ. Yet we argue. We accuse people of not having any faith. What's the means? The means is Jesus. The means is when Jesus comes. I pray, Lord, if you heal this person, I will praise you. If this person is not healed, I will praise you. This is some contingent thing. If, then. Both of these things, both the prayer and the answer to the prayer, are being exerted by the source of power, by Jesus Himself, the sustenance to make it through trials and difficulties, and the wherewithal to humble yourself and give thanks. Look at the man who Jesus healed, the leper that Jesus healed. He was pretending not to be a leper. Jesus heals him as leprosy, and he just walks right off and doesn't do anything. He doesn't even say thank you. Or the 12 lepers, 10 or 12. He heals all but one, or heals them all. Only one comes back to give him thanks. Because we're right off the next thing we need. No wonder he says, an unbelieving generation. And this is a critical point, the critical truth to embrace. The power resides exclusively in the person of Jesus and is exerted by Him alone according to His will. We must wait for Jesus through prayer and petition. We call upon Him to bring healing and deliverance. But again, He is the only source and force of healing and power. Sometimes immediately. Sometimes before we even ask. I didn't have to ask God to put enough oxygen in this room for me to finish this sermon. I didn't have to do that. We take so many things for granted. They're just abundantly poured upon us. We don't give thanks. 
glad God's in charge of this world. You know what? You watch politics wherever you watch it. Whatever your brand is, you watch politics. Man, you think this world's coming apart. And the way that 24-hour news sticks in your nose everywhere, we got this terrible thing going on, and there's, you know, 15 people that are affected out of 360 million. Oh, oh God, where's the masks? The earth is the Lord's. God has a will. He's accomplishing. I'm not saying we shouldn't be cautious. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Man, we take this to a whole new level. Lives change. Lives totally change. Tender lives that were worshipers of God and loved God and saw things around them change. And then the big one came and then it had to happen. And if it doesn't happen, I'll still praise you. But it didn't happen and they didn't praise him. Maybe some of us are disappointed. Maybe we have disappointments. I, I look at my oldest son, and I look at him and I think, he has these dreams in his heart. He starts talking about them. Even now, he's 30-some years old. He's talking about, Dad, I, I want to get in shape, and I want to play basketball again. I want to be able to run and jump. And I want that too. But more important is that is to see a worshiper and a lover of God and a lover of His Word and a man who raises his children in Christ. You know, you know we're so spoiled we got to have the best thing that we think we can have. He never would have touched a guitar if he'd been great in basketball. I didn't think about, basket, about anything in music, really seriously, until I was out of basketball. And I gently try to tell him that, okay? We must wait for Jesus. We must wait for Jesus. Again, he alone is a source and the force of healing power. Sometimes immediately, sometimes with great patience and humility. But ultimately, all of what we experience brings glory to God according to his own will and pleasure. You know, there's a real cure for some of this stuff. Start your prayers and try to expound on this phrase. My master. If Jesus Christ is our Lord, try, you're my Lord. Try praying and articulating to God how He's the master of your life. And see if you come out on the other end thinking that He is the genie of your life. I can tell you, you'll suffer more from moving away from the truth of the Scripture than you will by you know, following this other route where God does everything you want. It's all up to me, my choices, the way I things I do. I've got to work out, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, this, this. You know, I, don't, I can't do that in anything. I'll, I'll just say the first thing. I mean, what's that Scripture? What's that Scripture that you know, just got in the Bible yesterday so people don't know what it is? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, first thing here is, that doesn't mean you, get, you can't be rich. It doesn't mean you can't have... Oh, it's, it's worse than just having money or not having money. It's poverty. It's poverty of seeing myself as having capacities in myself, of myself, of really how frail I actually am, how impoverished I am. The Word takes on the idea of absolute abstract poverty. Not building myself up to be a strong person so I can exert my faith. No, my faith is perfect. Because it's Jesus' faith. And just a word. Just an action. Sure, Jesus healed the boy. Jesus sent his father rejoicing. But he obviously brings a humility with that. I want to see God glorified in everything he does. When James Montgomery Boyce got cancer and died, and he got literally hundreds of thousands of letters from people who wrote him and said, we're praying for you to be healed. We're praying for you to be healed. And the last devotional that he gave before he never spoke again, shortly before he died, he made the case that God is sovereign and he could heal me if he wanted to. And I could die. 
But think of this. I can die in my sins or I can die in faith. And I want to ask for you to pray that whatever I do, whatever I experience, God is glorified. Be lifted up. Do it. Say it with me. Be lifted. Come on. Come on. Be lifted up. Put your hands. Be lifted up. Say it. Be lifted up, Lord. Be lifted up. Be lifted up in everything we do, Lord. Be lifted up. Be lifted up. That's what the world needs. When we lift up the Son, they look upon Him and they're saved. Be lifted up. Be lifted up. I forget how the song goes. As we bow down, be lifted up, be lifted up, be lifted up. As we bow down, be lifted up. Be lifted up in our lives, be lifted up in our homes, be lifted up in the world, in our political system, in our religious systems. Be lifted up. That's what we need, Lord, for you to be lifted up. Be lifted up, up, O Lord. Be lifted up.